This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2016, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 5. I'm Kyle Lehman, and uh, I live here in the community, teach at FBCS. That's my wife, Joy, up uh, in the front row with me. Uh, and I always enjoy Teachers Week because it's a time of transition for me. Uh, I do construction work during the summer, and so things drastically change right after Teachers Week. I go from being in the sun every day and carrying boards and pounding nails to working with my head in a different way, I guess. Uh, so this is always kind of like the, the mark of the transition for me, and I'm already enjoying the energy that I'm starting to feel for another school year just being with you all. So uh, exciting to be here with you. Uh, I'd like to give two disclaimers before we begin talking here today. Uh, first of all, you all really scare me because many of you have taught longer than I have and can tell me a thing or two about teaching, I'm sure. And... So that's kind of scary. On the other hand, we're a safe group because uh, I think that we identify on a lot of issues and I feel like we probably know each other just because of the fact that we're school teachers. And so that also feels good. But for the disclaimers, uh, I am assuming that you are someone that has already taught for at least a while. And... So I, I'm not going to spend any time talking about things that, uh, that I think a first-year teacher ought to be hearing. In fact, I'm going to blatantly brush over things that could sound like I'm ignorant and, and don't know the other side of the coin. But I'm going to assume that you've already taught long enough to know something about the basics of classroom management. And so uh, when I talk about choices, for example, I'm assuming you already know uh, that sometimes you got to get a student by the scruff of the neck and say, you will do this. Uh, and anybody that has taught long knows that you have to have the courage to sometimes be dad, sometimes be mom. And I'm just going to assume that you've taught long enough to already know those things. I also am going to assume that you're going to not come to the first session and decide that I'm normally not come back because I'm, uh, whenever you speak like this, it's, you feel the urge to explain everything about every face of every point you make. And there is a time for that. So sometimes we have to wait till later to, to maybe see the other side of the coin. And so I hope you hear me out the way to the end, or you might come away with some gross exaggerations or maybe even some uh, lies. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if your father ever told you something like this, but maybe as you went out the door, he might have said, I just want you to remember, I think especially the teenagers, you know, teenagers hear this, you might say, I want you to remember who you are uh, as you head out the door. And I think as a teenager, sometimes you're kind of like, oh yeah, Dad, uh, I know who I am. You know, uh, I don't need to hear that. But I'd actually like to begin this morning by reminding you who you are. And, and I think it's good for us to be reminded of those things. I have to remind myself of that almost every year I walk into the classroom. I think we can't quit saying, hey, who am I? Uh, what am I doing here? Uh, yeah, what's the motivation behind my energies this school year? So I'd like to begin by reminding you who you are you know, this morning. And that's why I'd like to start out by talking about an Anabaptist context. First of all, 
Anabaptists. I, I, saw, I think it's a little short history lesson here. I'll try to make it quick. I think most of you probably already know some of these things, but it's a good reminder where we've come from. Uh, Anabaptism began uh, with some skepticism towards the institutional church's ability to manifest the kingdom of God. And I would even say pretty early, that skepticism existed pretty early on, before the Anabaptist movement that we often talk about. Skepticism uh, existed before that. And a key piece of that skepticism was that the Anabaptists believed that the church militant and triumphant does not reflect Jesus. And I would like to just remind us of those roots. And I think it's a major distinctive about us as a people. Uh, When we compare ourselves with the Christianity that is around us, that is maybe the primary thing that sets us apart as May I be as arrogant to say as as people that radically follow Jesus uh, in, I I think, maybe a more sacrificial way. I mean, sacrificing yourself on the cross is more sacrificial than taking a gun to somebody. Um, So I think it's a distinctive about who we are uh, and our tradition. And as Anabaptists, we have refused to pick up the sword. And much of Christianity, even historically, has not refused to pick up the sword. And those of you that teach history could list off the historical events, whether it's the Crusades or whatever it may be. Historically, Christianity has really struggled to pick up on that piece of Jesus' message. It says, we refuse to pick up the sword. It's not the way Jesus did it, and that's not the way we did it. So I'd like to remind you that Jesus also refused to pick up the sword, and we as Anabaptists uh, copy him in that way. This Anabaptist perspective, I, and I'm sure you know this, is, as I said, it's already it's historically rare, but I think it's even rare today. Now, if we walk out in, into Meadville this afternoon and we started to ask people if they were Christians, we'd find a lot of people that would say they are Christians, but we would find very, very few people that would be unwilling to pick up the sword. There would be almost nobody in Meadville that would, that would hold that position. It's an increasingly rare thing. This is a sign from Texas. Anybody here from Texas? All right. Got a few people from Texas. This is not Texas hate. Uh, but this sign says, pray for Obama, and then it has a scripture reference there. And I don't know if anybody knows the scripture reference, but I thought we'd take a quick look at it. And this is from Psalm 109. <laughs> let his days be few, and let another take his office. And I just remind you that most of Christianity has no problem with taking up the sword. And this passage doesn't get any better, better so I actually look a little deeper into the passage. And you know, this is only scratching the surface. Uh, the, the quoters here are willing to go farther if they would have added a little more of their reference. Uh, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the Creator seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. And this next verse is incredibly harsh. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his fatherless children. It could almost even seem a little militant. May his posterity, posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his father be remembered before the Lord. And then this is, the, you know, once again, just the harshness and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. 
And once again, as Anabaptists, we just come from a completely different perspective than this. Uh, a, a radically different perspective. And I think that's why we have to remind ourselves every year when we walk into the classroom, who am I? Uh, what context am I coming from? What do I hope from these young people? And what are my desires and, I think, dreams for the future of us as a people? Another distinctive about the Anabaptists, and I think ourselves, is that the Anabaptists are historically less about believing the correct things and more about having a transformed life. Now, I completely understand that believing the correct things is also important and would really hesitate to minimize that. And I've heard uh, people since... Uh, speak on and talk about our Anabaptist heritage and say, oh, they really did emphasize believing. And that, and that would be, there'd be a legitimate ways to argue that, but I still, I would still say that the core emphasis of what it means to be an Anabaptist is to have a transformed life, a changed way of living. Uh, the realities of how I walk and talk are different because of my belief in Jesus and the fact that I follow him. And that is the core of what we, of, of what we are as people and who we are, Though believing is also important, uh, at the core of who we are is a belief in a transformed life. We are transformed into the likeness of Jesus himself. So it's not just good enough to, to care about being transformed, we have to care about what we're being transformed into. And once again, our roots, our tradition, is that we are transformed into the likeness of, of Jesus himself. We're changed, we're reshaped. And then the last piece of the context that I'd like to point out is that it was the 15th century Anabaptists that were the first group of these dissenters that actually managed to pass on a tradition. So there were people that held these views that I have up here before you as well that do not have a tradition that exists today. We as Anabaptists have had that tradition passed on to us. And so I ask, who are we? We are Anabaptists. We, we have that tradition given to us. And I walk into the classroom this year with the knowledge that I'm an Anabaptist. And I have a tradition that's been given to me. And I care about giving that tradition to the young people that I'm going to spend the next school year with. And so I don't walk into there as Kyle Lehman that's been alive on the face of the earth for X amount of years. And... That's the sum of what I walk into the classroom as a person that is coming out from a long history, uh, a way of living, a way of following Jesus that I really believe in. And, and my encouragement to you is to believe in that as well and to walk into your classrooms this year with, with purpose, once again, and to know who you are uh, and to teach out of that context. So I make no apology. When I walk into the classroom, I intend to be an Anabaptist teacher. And today, and throughout this week as I talk to you, I intend to speak to you from an Anabaptist context. I also want to be open to you challenging me and say, I don't think that sounded Anabaptist. Because that's one of the ways we can sometimes begin to redefine Anabaptism or redefine Jesus following unknowledgeably. And we have to be able to help each other say, yeah, that is, you're on, you're on track. I think you're missing it. So I want to also be open to you say, hey, I want to challenge you. I don't think that. I don't think that's an Anabaptist perspective. Because my goal is to speak to you as an Anabaptist. 
So we need to know who we are. I recently heard of a Southern Baptist preacher who, uh, who in his church, prays with his people that Obama would be killed, that he would be assassinated. And the interesting thing to me was the interview that he had. Uh, I'm not sure when the interview happened here in the last year at least. And in the interview, he was asked, why do you pray this with your people? And he said, well, I can't help it. I, I just believe the whole Bible. I believe all parts of it. And I thought to myself, you know, that sounds, that sounds really godly. I think I believe the whole Bible. How come him and I are ending up at two pretty different places? I haven't been praying that with my students. And so I was trying to think through that idea of, well, his defense for that is I believe the whole Bible. And one of the things that I think is important for us as teachers to carry with us into the classroom as Anabaptists is, is a belief in the Bible, but we also, from our Anabaptist context, source our interpretation and our teaching from the life of Christ. And so there's this idea of Jesus jumping that I think Anabaptists should have a problem with. And I think Anabaptist teachers should have a problem with this. And... And that's the idea of jumping over Jesus and ignoring who he is and grabbing pieces of scripture that maybe do something for you that, that are beneficial to you or that you like. Maybe they support your agendas. And I think that uh, Anabaptist teachers need to avoid Jesus jumping. An Anabaptist core value, as I've already talked about, is transformation into the likeness of Christ. The transformed follow Jesus. We are Jesus followers. That's what it means to be transformed. And I don't think it's very illogical to then say that Jesus jumping is the absolute antithesis of following Jesus. You don't follow someone and then explicitly jump over them and ignore them and say that you are a follower of them. That doesn't make any sense. And so, as Anabaptists, a core value being the transformation into the likeness of Christ, we refuse to jump over Jesus. Our tradition forbids us to jump over Jesus in order to grab something just because we like it. And so I remind you, we need to know who we are. We are Jesus followers for Anabaptists. That is a core value for us. That is a driving factor in who we are as teachers. So I like to help my students remember who they are. Has anyone ever seen this memorial before? This is a memorial located in Washington, D.C. It's the Guns into Plowshares Memorial. And we take senior trips and we go on a rotation every other year. We, uh, we go to Washington, D.C. And one of the things that we always do with our seniors when we're in D.C. is we take what we call a memorial stroll. So in the evening after it's dark, we go out and walk around the park, in, or the mall, sorry, the mall, and we take a look at all the memorials that are lit up, and you know, those memorials are pretty magnificent if you've ever been there. Has anyone ever been to the Lincoln Memorial? So more of us have been to the Lincoln Memorial than the, than the Guns and the Plowshares Memorial. Uh, the Lincoln Memorial is, ma is magnificent. You walk around, I think it's just so big, and you know, the lights are shining on it in such a magnificent way, and there's a lot of pomp and power in those memorials. And most of those memorials are about war, believe it or not. Uh, and we take this memorial stroll. 
And I hate to take that memorial stroll without somehow saying something to my students that reminds them that's not really who we are. Uh, we are something different than that. So one of the things, and I did not start this tradition, I don't know if Gerald started it or if Brandon started it, someone at FBCS started the tradition of visiting the Guns and the Plowshares Memorial. And we've been doing that for years. And I came here to teach and started taking the seniors on the senior trip. And the Guns and the Plowshares Memorial disappeared. We couldn't find it. The location that it had been at uh, now has a fountain. So there's a beautiful fountain, a beautiful green lawn, but no guns in the Plowshares Memorial. Maybe just give you a little, little bit of the story on the memorial. Uh, Esther Augsburger and her son Michael Augsburger were the ones that created the Guns in the Plowshares Memorial. And there was, they worked in conjunction with the police department of Washington, D.C. And they proposed to have a day of amnesty where people in the city that owned guns illegally could bring those guns and turn them in and they would be freely pardoned for having an illegal gun and uh, I, I don't know if the crimes went along with the gun, I'm not sure you know, how all that worked, but they could, they could hand in their guns. So they did this and then they took these guns and they melted them into this plowshare. And I think it's around 3,000 guns were turned in and turned into this plowshare and some guns in the plowshares memorial. And the, and the, the police department, seemed, they seem to be pretty excited about that, uh, about that whole event and really cooperated well and were uh, part of that. Placed the memorial in a very prominent location. This is Judiciary Square. There's a metro station right there. This picture doesn't show up very well, but it's a beautiful place that is heavily trafficked. And the memorial was placed there. Well, it's removed now and there's a fountain there and I want to know what happened to it. So I told the seniors we're going to look for it. So we did some research, and we looked for it, and we could not find it. I tried. I did some research online and had no luck. We had some ideas, and we drove around, but could not find the guns in the plowshares memorial. But I didn't give up. Then uh, The next time the trip came around, we worked at it a little harder. Some new information came up, and we discovered that the guns in the plowshares memorial had been moved to a maintenance yard, Ironically, beside the city waste department. So I had a better idea of where to find this Guns in the Plowshares Memorial. So got on Google Street View, you can do some things now you used to not be able to do, and kind of zeroed in on the thing, and we went looking for it, and we found it. Uh, you go back this little gravel road that is basically, it looks like a lane going to somebody's house, and you end up at a, a municipal building and they kind of have it sitting there off to the side and it's up against the back of the housing development. No one will ever see it there. There's a reason you've never seen the guns in the Bob Shares Memorial. It's completely disappeared. And furthermore, these are pictures that I took while I was there. It's become very rusty and fallen into incredible disrepair. Uh, there's even a few, there's even a few vodka bottles smashed up against the bottom of it there. And, uh, yeah, it's just really, no one's taking care of it. The thing has just completely disappeared. And I just put to you once again that the distinctive about who we are is not valued in this world. And, and I just want to encourage you to have a deep value for 
I think one of the key pieces of what Jesus had to offer to us, and that is the sacrificial living, the sacrificial loving, the refusal to pick up the sword. It's a completely different approach from not just the ungodly world, but may I say even much of Christianity. And I would love to see that memorial be put out there. One of the, I have this secret dream of getting my students together and saying, all right, what do we got to do? Let's raise money. Let's, let's work out. Let's find a way to get that thing out of that place and put it somewhere where people can see it again. And maybe that will happen someday. I don't know. If you have ideas about how that can happen, you can talk to me maybe sometime this week. The transformation into a person that looks like Jesus and walks like Jesus, I think, is so important that it should not just permeate our ideas about physical violence. I think it should permeate our whole lives. And so this idea of sacrificial love, this idea of refusing to pick up the sword, this idea of actually beating swords into plowshares, I think should permeate our education. I think it should permeate who we are and what we teach and how we teach and it should become uh, something that radically transforms our students. And that's what I want to talk about this week. Swords to plowshares, knowledge to wisdom. So I'm going to begin by talking about knowledge. Knowledge is not neutral. I think this is a key element of carrying this aspect of who Jesus is into our classrooms, is we have to begin to recognize that knowledge is not neutral. Knowledge is not X and I love. It is. It comes from something. It comes from somewhere. It can't just be something that comes out of nowhere. It has to come from something. As Anabaptists, we believe that God is the source of all things and the source of knowledge. So therefore, I think it's inexcusable for Christians to treat knowledge as if it's neutral. I think that would be similar to slapping God in the face and saying that he doesn't exist because knowledge can exist separately from him. And I don't think that's possible. Knowledge is not neutral. It must come from somewhere. It can come from a bad place. It can come from a good place. It's easy to look at a fact so it's just a fact, which is often the explanation for going to a secular college. To say, well, we're going to go, but I'm just going to get the facts from them. I'm not going to get anything else. Knowledge is not neutral. It comes from somewhere. And I think it's interesting that knowledge is not treated as something neutral, even at the beginning of time. Take the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what did God say about that? He said, you be careful about that tree of knowledge for good and evil. In fact, you don't eat of that thing. And Satan's response was to, was to come in and warp what God had said about that. And said, no, knowledge is, knowledge is not something you have to worry about. In fact, uh, in fact, you should eat of that tree because then you will be like God. You will know things. God's lying to you. He's treating it like it's this thing you have to be careful with. But it's not that way. In fact, he's trying to keep you from the good stuff. So it's interesting to me that this idea of neutral knowledge was being wrestled with 
in the garden. And God did, God did not treat knowledge as if it were neutral from the beginning. Therefore, I think that knowledge has a propensity towards power, manipulation, wars of the mind and will, pride, and arrogance. I think that's its natural propensity. I don't think it has to go there. But I think that's its natural propensity. Once again, uh, that is what we see coming out of Adam and Eve's partaking of that fruit. As we find many of these things being bred into our world now, and you and I wrestle with them each day. Knowledge can be power. Our world knows that. I try not to follow the political scene too much, but if you follow the political scene much, you'll see many of the things on this, on this list right here in conjunction with knowledge. Power, manipulation, wars of the will and mind, pride, arrogance, all elements of, of a very warped view of what knowledge is and a wrong usage of it. It's a little risky to try to take knowledge to a group like you. You know that. Because you're teachers. But I think we need to do that. Because teachers are well equipped with the tools to deeply manifest these things in the next generation. You are equipped to walk into that classroom and equip your students to be sunk in the power, manipulation, wars of the will, mind, pride, and arrogance. You have the ability to do that. Because you are a person that's going to walk into that classroom and you are going to handle knowledge. I often tell my students, and I recognize I'm working with 11th and 12th grade students, but I tell them at the beginning of the year, if we get to the end of this year, and I taught you a lot about science, or a lot about history, or a lot about whatever it may be, and it makes you an arrogant person, I'm going to wish I'd never taught it to you. If it makes you go out and use the things that you now know, that you learned this year in school, and you use them in ways to gain power, or you use them in ways to manipulate another person, I'm going to wish I had never taught it to you. I'm going to wish you didn't have the knowledge. We are equipped to manifest these things in the next generation. So, an old question. And I come back to something that we've critiqued, we've picked it up, we've thrown it down, we've done all kinds of things with this one as Anabaptist people. Sometimes it's been very frustrating to me when Anabaptists resist knowledge. That's been very hard for me at times. But in the same breath, should Anabaptists apologize for traditionally treating knowledge a bit like a loaded gun? I think I personally have been challenged on that as I've taught. I've been in the classroom longer. I think I have a healthier respect for that old farmer that never was a school teacher. He doesn't have a college degree, but he's wary of higher education. And Anabaptists have traditionally treated knowledge a bit like a loaded gun. And so I put the question out there to you. What do you think about that? And you can talk about that over some of your dinner tables. So, a few things an Anabaptist education will do. One, it will offer knowledge. You can't do school without offering knowledge. 
At least I don't think you can. But this is what makes our schools hopefully different from the schools of the nation is that yes, we will offer knowledge and hopefully excellent knowledge and we'll do a great job with that. But we will beat on that knowledge. We aren't okay with it in its raw form. We're going to reshape that knowledge into a new product. And maybe that's overstated, I don't know. But I really do think we're actually looking for something that is literally different. And it, it's literally reshaped and transformed into something that is new. That isn't going to happen automatically. That's why we have to be people that are willing to work very hard. And to put our hearts out there on that desk every morning and the students can see that thing up there throbbing. Because this is not an easy job. And ultimately, we will aim for godly wisdom, which is, I think, the new product that we're aiming for. Now, I understand. Some of you are elementary teachers. And as soon as we start talking about wisdom, an elementary teacher says, you're in another ballpark, man. Uh, we work at lining up. <laughs> and, and we work at just doing things, you know, the right way. I understand that. Uh, I wish that I had more experience with elementary teaching, so I might be able to be more creative for you in this talk. I hope that maybe you can do that, maybe for me, in that regard, because I don't have elementary experience. However, I do want to say this. I understand that the, the path from knowledge to wisdom is not an event. It's a process. So... I completely understand that we don't walk into our first graders' classroom and say, hey, wisdom boys, it's the wisdom. Um, I recognize that. So, though it's a process, I think, you know, you pass from knowledge to understanding and eventually to wisdom, hopefully. Uh, so maybe some, some practical ways of thinking about it would be start with facts, you then have meaning, and then ultimately when you have wisdom, you know what to do next. You make decisions. Of course, there's information, and then from that you get the principles and then application. But I'm not going to let you elementary teachers off the hook. Because I think that process actually, it happens in a first grade classroom as well. It'll look different than it looks in my 11th and 12th grade classroom. But it still happens. A first grader has a memory. A first grader knows how to reason. And a first grader knows how to do an action. And we can act out of wisdom. And so I think it's possible for this process to happen in every grade of the classroom. It'd be nice if I could put up a few slides here and say, this is exactly what it would look like in first and second grade. That's where I feel really unknowledgeable and limited and unable to talk about that. But I hope you can talk about that, maybe with each other. I want to finish with a look at uh, look into James. And I think this passage has become real to me in regard to this topic because it outlines some 
some key elements of this process of a healthy perspective of knowledge and a desire to not just accept knowledge in the raw form that the world offers it, to say, no, it is not neutral. It must be hammered on and shaped and molded into something that is fit for the kingdom. And we as teachers are the people that can hopefully help with that process. We're not the only players in that process. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And these verses speak of that. The first part speaks of a transformed life. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. My thought, my thought is, wisdom is demonstrated by, once again, a transformed life. It's actual things you do, good conduct, works. Talks about this meekness of wisdom as well, which is interesting. My thought is, it's this transformed life that we're after, and let him be the next generation's teacher that has experienced this transformation. This is why it does matter who's standing in the front of the classroom. It, it's, you know, can a, can a video actually demonstrate what we're talking about here? A video can put forth some facts. I can play a video up here, and you can learn some things from it. You can learn some facts from it. But it can't do what this is talking about. There is not a good conduct and a transformed life that's put on display. That can, that can do what a teacher of character can do. It's interesting. So I've been warning you about knowledge. The next part of this verse gives a heart warning. It says, this is true. This is the person that I think ought to be teaching our children. But I want to give you a heart warning as well. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I think we have to reckon that this, this warning is given because it's a reality. This can happen to any of us. Inside of us, we can begin to have things go on that don't look like Jesus, that don't look like the transformed life. And this is a warning about that. I think that knowledge can do that. You take knowledge and you put that into your students, and several things can happen with that, which is why we can't just treat it as it's neutral. We have to put it in there, and then we're not done. That's only the beginning. Because this is a hard option with that. You can come to have selfish ambition. You can become bitterly jealous of someone that has more knowledge than you. And the results aren't good. It says there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the school's goal is to, I think, reckon with the heart warning and, and then take seriously the last part of these verses. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I see Jesus bleed through that last verse. An incredible force. The transformed life, once again, 
It should look like this. This is our goal. We want to take students, we want to teach them some knowledge. But we want them to, to do something with that knowledge. We want to reshape that knowledge, even, into something that looks more like the last part of these verses here. And that's our responsibility. There is a bit of, of a divide that I'd like to reckon with that we as humans struggle with. I struggle with this. I think my students struggle with this. Let me explain. Epistemology is how we know. How, how do we know something? It's your way of knowing. So bipolar epistemology is, well, we either know this way or this way, and they're really far apart. It's either up or down. And the little chart that I created here has credentials and lack of credentials. I think human beings find it easy to either swing to one side or the other side of this bipolar epistemology. So someone that has the right credentials, we tend to look at them and say, they can teach me everything. You know, I like to play some basketball. I've already thought, you know, if LeBron James would come into the gym while I was playing basketball, I guess he has credentials in regard to basketball. And if he walked into the gym, I would be tempted to say, you know, if he said it about basketball, I'll do it. You know, because he can teach me everything about basketball. The reality is, not to say that I'm a great basketball player, but that's probably not true. As good as he is about that, as good as he is at basketball, that's probably not true. There's probably something that he might tell me to do or to play a certain way that might not actually make me a better player. So the approach says if the credentials are there, then they can teach us everything that's on one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum is that if there is a lack of credentials, then we can learn nothing from that person. Sometimes I experience this on the construction crew. We have young guys that they get out of high school and they start to help us. And I've been doing construction for 15 years. And sometimes in the middle of a project, one of them will say, why don't you do this? And you know deep down inside your head, you know, that was a good idea. Why didn't I think about that? Or I never knew you could use a tape measure that way or whatever it might be. It takes a lot of humility in that moment to say, you know what, I never knew that. The newbie just knew more than what I did. That is really difficult. Rather, we're going to treat that person as, you don't have the credentials, you can't teach me anything, I can't even learn how to use a tape measure from you. So we tend to find ourselves in one of those camps with the people around us. As teachers, i got to tell you, that can be a struggle because you can look at your students and say, they don't have the credentials, they can't teach me anything. Your students can also, they're always judging the people around them and trying to decide, does this person have the credentials to be able to tell me what to do or doesn't he? I think those are bad questions to ask because I think that's a bipolar way of knowing things. I think there's another way, and that is we should have discernment, but we don't fall in either of those camps. There's a discernment and there's a humble wisdom. Then in that moment when the new guy in the construction crew says, didn't you know that you can use a tape measure and do it this way, that you can be humble enough to say, you know what, that's amazing. I didn't realize that. And when someone who has 
doctor behind their name or has credentials in some way that we say, boy, you know, they must just know way more than me about this subject. You need to be humble enough to recognize they probably do know way more than you about the subject, but also discerning enough and wise enough to know that they might tell you something that is not right for you. And it is not good. So I think that not only do we as teachers have to watch out for this bipolar epistemology, we actually have to, we need to help our students not become this. And I think that uh, there's lots of little practical ways we can do that. It's how we talk about people. They watch you and they say, how does my teacher learn? And if they don't see you being in the middle here and having discernment and wisdom, I think you can be pretty sure that they're most likely not going to become like that. So my challenge for us this morning is to know who we are. We are Anabaptists. We follow Jesus, and I'm going to say a distinctive way, in the way of the cross, the refusal to pick up the sword, which I think ultimately in our educational system, in our Anabaptist schools, means that we treat knowledge different than the rest of the world. We know different than what most people know. We have to avoid becoming arrogant about that. But I think that's a big piece of knowing who we are. We are Anabaptists, and we have a humble knowledge and a humble wisdom, hopefully, and we want to pass that to our students. We're out of time. Turn the time over to Howard. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.